0: Hey, Bola, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Tara. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here today. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Oh, I so exciting, so exciting. So could you explain to our listeners who you are and what you do today? But, and then we'll circle back to what has led you here.
1: So I'm Dr Bola Owolabi, I'm Director Healthcare Inequalities at NHS England and Improvement and I lead the National Healthcare Inequalities Improvement Programme in the NHS. I also work clinically as a GP um, in North East Derbyshire. So you
0: helped remind me a couple of years ago, so I think we got connected on LinkedIn and we had a conversation, what did we discuss, can you remember?
1: Yes, I do remember it very clearly. And it was at a point where I knew that I had so much more to give, but was really keen to make sure that whatever else I did spoke very powerfully to my values and to my passion. And I had watched you build um, you know, the business of healthcare. I was just in awe really of your passion your confidence in the way that you'd gone about it. And I thought, you know, I need to speak to somebody that is outside of my professional line and is intentionally creating ways forward. I just wanted to absorb your story, and I'm so glad I did. And that's the conversation we had. How do you open avenues for greater responsibility that aligns with your passion and your values? That was the summary, essentially.
0: And now you are the director of, of health inequalities. Like that is huge. So talk us through the steps. You went from GP to director in quite a short space of
1: time. So actually, it, it probably goes back a little bit further than that. So I, I, I started work as, a, as an employed GP many years ago, straight after qualifying and finishing my GP training. And I remember the amazing Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, who was the senior partner at my first ever practice. I'm sharing the story to emphasize the power of sponsorship and mentoring. And she said to me, there's just something about you, Bola. You know, you have a natural leadership instinct. i tell you what we'll do. Why don't you go to the University of Exeter for a year and do the Royal College of GPs leadership development course there on a part-time basis. So I went off and I did that. That probably was the first taste of leadership in a formal sense that I got from a training perspective. But what that did though, is it, it helped me to understand a little bit more about myself. And so from then on, I went on to become the prescribing lead in our practice. And when you're the prescribing lead in your practice, you get the opportunity of connecting with the prescribing leads in other practices in the area. That then led to the opportunity um, to become the clinical commissioning lead for maternity, children, and young people. That then led to the opportunity to become the system lead for end-of-life care, and then the opportunity to be the system lead for frailty, And as I was working as the system lead for frailty and still practicing as a GP, NHS England and Improvement advertised for a national specialty advisor for older people and integrated person-centered care. And I applied and just told my story of all I had done up till that point and was appointed to that role in 2019. And I poured all of myself into that role. And of course the pandemic struck and there was so much to do and not enough people to do it. And I just absolutely threw all of me into that pandemic response. And then a decision was made to appoint a director for health inequalities in the national team at NHS England An improvement in n- November, 2020. And I applied for that role And essentially told the story, my pandemic story, of the contributions that I had made and the opportunities I could see. And here I am. That's
0: amazing. So this current position, so the Director of Health Inequalities, that was a brand new role.
1: So that was a brand new role in this form. Okay. So health health inequalities has been part of the business of NHS England since the organisation was formed. Yeah. But in terms of having a designated, discreet director for this portfolio, yes, that was the first time that was done.
0: So what did there is a this this quite a popular book called like your first 90 days. If you're a CEO, you go in for the first 90 days, first 100 days and you're not supposed to do anything. You're just supposed to listen. <laughs> what did you do in like the first few months of this role?
1: So I knew that the, the, the challenge of health inequalities are not new. There's a huge amount of data and evidence around it. The what of the problem was clear. The why was clear. What was less clear was the how to deal with it. And so I Deliberately, as you said, just listen. I had numerous conversations. I was talking to people literally from about 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. every day of every week for about five months. I just got myself in the diary of every person and every organization that I knew was vested in this space who could give me. The world as it looked from their perspective. And by the beginning of the sixth month, all of that had distilled in my mind into a vision. And I started to say to people, our vision is to provide exceptional quality healthcare for all by ensuring equitable access, excellent experience, and optimal outcomes. That vision Is the summation, the distillation of the voices, and it became powerful as a result. And it started to open up the avenues of so, what do we need to do? It's almost as though everything else streamed from that vision statement. And I genuinely don't know that we would have made the progress we've made without that intensely listening to people. And then distilling what they said and reflecting it back in that coherent vision that everybody could sign up to and say, yes, that's what we said. So what progress
0: have you made?
1: So, you know, I I am absolutely delighted that we have built such a head of steam behind this agenda. The momentum that we've gained is, is just tremendous. And I'd look at some very specific things. For example, you look at organizations that have reviewed and updated their strategies to be explicit about addressing health inequalities, whether that is the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, or whether that is the National Institute for um, um, Care and Healthcare Excellence, NICE, whether that is the Faculty for Medical Leadership and Management, or the Health Foundation, which is one of the most influential think tanks. And I'm just naming a few. But back to the, our NHS itself, you, know, you look at our operational planning guidance as an organization, health inequalities writ large across that. You look at the ICS white paper, the integrated care system, as we go forward now into integrated care system and how health inequalities is one of the four key purposes of integrated care systems. That is a significant anchor for all the work that we need to do. You look at the health and care bill as it's making its way through parliament, as it's it's making its way through the House of Lords and how health inequalities is writ large into that. You look at the leveling up white paper being published today and you see the clarity in terms of this is what we need to do in tackling health inequalities or disparities. And for me, being able to powerfully influence those key policies, those key instruments and levers of state is very important. That's on the one hand. And then the projects that we've been able to mobilize across the country. You know, for example, yesterday I was visiting Cromer. Uh, We were windswept and sleet swept and the sea was so stormy that even the fishermen didn't dare to venture out. But, you know, to be able to see that coastal community having access to dental care, mental health support, you know, out there on the windswept beaches of Cromer, you know, as a living example of this is what it looks like when we reach communities at the margins. This is what equitable access means. Or when I went to, along um, um, to visit um, in Clacton-on-Sea, and met with the heads of school, Health Education England, NHS England, captains of industry, to think about how do we lift the aspiration of the people of Clacton-on-Sea? How do we take the sixth formers And provide opportunity and hope for them to come out from those sorts of meetings with everybody signing up and saying, we're going to have a health and care academy and start creating opportunities for those young people. You know, so apart from, you know, influencing policy and all of those things, those tangible, practical or going to Greater Manchester. And seeing the work that we've done and are doing in collaboration my colleagues in the nhs prevention program the work that they're doing with the british heritage center really getting the imams the imam network to actually take the message of type 2 diabetes prevention out into the community in a culturally competent language that people can actually connect with you know the work we've done with the vaccination program really making the case that yes we need to deploy the vaccines across the country, but we need to deploy the vaccines in a way that ensures equitable access, pop-up centers, places of worship, ringing up the imams, ringing up the pastors. Let's use your venue to deliver these vaccines. You know, I'm sitting here today and thinking, it's not perfect, but you know what? We're not where we were at the beginning of the program in terms of the communities that we've been able to reach. So, look, I better stop, but I could go on. This, <laughs> this, this really gets no, me going, you know, I talking think... about all the fantastic progress we've made with the help and the support of so many, many people.
0: It's important for you to share because you are at the top, well, you kind of both, because you are still, you do still uh, practice clinically, but you are at the top developing the strategy and influencing and lobbying. But from my point of view, so I wanted to say, and I feel a little bit emotional, we created our health and care inequality grant, our £10,000 grant, because I just kept seeing you popping up. What is my role? What can I do? I don't do enough. I don't know enough. I'm learning. Sometimes I think people think, look, if you're black or if you're not white, you have the answers and that you should know. And I'm like everybody else. I'm learning. And I kept seeing you and the work that you did and do and thought, okay, what can I do? I do. We all have a platform. You know, I've got a small platform. Got but some it's money.
1: extraordinary, you know, being able to put that health inequalities grant out there. I saw that and it just made my heart begin to sing, you know, because I thought this is amazing. And just in that particular week or two, so we had NHSX launch their Digital Health Inequalities Pioneer Fund. We had the CQC launch their Health Inequalities Innovation Fund. And then I saw Tara Humphrey launching her, you know, health inequalities accelerator fund. And I just, you know, that groundswell yeah. of support. And this is the key. You, you know that you're starting to make progress when it's not just you who is saying it. And it not it's not just you who is doing it. You yeah. know, as you said, when you have other people with platform and reach saying, this is worthy, I can actually make a contribution here and they begin to do it you know you've cracked some sort of ceiling at that point whether it's glass or not it doesn't really matter but you have so thank you Tara
0: and just to say with that grant we co-fund that with so one medical group and we're also working with DKMS who are a blood stem cell charity so you're right in the fact that initially it's your it's your idea it's your vision then you talk to somebody else and you talk to somebody else and like myself with our mentorship program initially I was very precious about it was like well I'll do it by myself and then someone was like well can I can I help can I be a mentor and I was a bit like okay then lots of people volunteered their time so you're so right in that but sometimes you don't know the difference that you're making you suppose you have to keep your eyes open don't you and to keep looking out and seeing it's all little breadcrumbs and one conversation goes to another conversation, goes to another conversation. And just, I think I wanted to shout out some organisations. So I've worked with Kenton Medway Medicines, Integrated Medicines Optimisation Board and they were developing their strategy. And what was really nice is that when we were appointing clinical leads to certain work streams, we had a very strong conversation saying, health inequalities, it's not a project, it's not a work stream. It runs through everything that we do and in i'd say in city and hackney we've conversations around even like at the in the job description you know or the interview process we need to ask them about health inequalities what are they going to do what are they going to do what do they know so on the ground we are taking it very seriously however and there is a however in my day-to-day work i'm in primary care networks when you're so busy i think i started to make a note you said there's so much to do and there's not enough people to do it. We need a health inequalities lead. What does that mean? What do they do? How are they going to find the time? They, they just need a name. How do we make it not a tick box exercise? Absolutely.
1: And that is such an important question. And, you know, um, I spent yesterday having a wonderful conversation with the chief executives of um, ambulance trusts right across the country. And we had a very similar discussion. And I've been talking to my colleagues in the primary care group within NHS England and Improvement and indeed GP colleagues right across the country in terms of, so what does that mean? What does this look like? And the conclusion is rather than thinking about it as another role, think about it as who is the champion and advocate for health inequalities in all of their spheres of influence. So, you know, the excellent account you've just given about Kent and Medway and other places where people are saying, actually, it needs to be just hardwired into what we do rather than than an optional extra, if you like. So I've been saying to my colleagues, there are three roles we can play. There is a personal role, which is every patient who sits in front of me. Do I understand the wider socioeconomic circumstances that they live in. Have I considered whether that person has the data to be able to have this video consultation? Or is it going to be the difference between them being able to afford the next meal or not? Have I thought about that? I can do that personally. I don't need any policy to help me with that. Can I recognize that actually, just prescribing yet another high blood pressure is not the answer. The reason the person's blood pressure is not coming down is because they couldn't afford the first one I prescribed. So there is something about that personal awareness. Then there's something about equipping ourselves professionally with the knowledge and the skills and the capabilities around addressing health inequalities. So we worked with the Royal College of General Practitioners, the RCGP to develop health inequalities education modules, which we've published, it's on their website. The BMA have also published the health inequalities toolkit, which can be used by you know, people from right across the professional groups. So how much do I understand? Because my understanding is what gives me voice to do the third thing. So there is the personal, the professional. The third thing is the advocacy. When I've armed myself with the knowledge and the information about health inequalities, it's then possible at the primary care network meetings for me to be the voice to say, as we think about this particular piece of work, what is the health inequalities dimension of that? And certainly, rather than it being another role, yes. another time for somebody to take out, it becomes part of their balance. It becomes part of you know, the contribution they make routinely. And then is the fourth element, which is our additional roles colleagues, our social prescriber link workers, the powerful contribution they can make, the reach they've got into people's lives, into those wider determinants that I as a GP might not be able to singularly influence. But if I work with my social prescriber link worker, If I work with my clinical pharmacist, if I work with my first contact practitioner and get that whole team understanding health inequalities for my patient population, you can see how immediately it goes away from an individual person carrying the burden of health inequalities into a whole team response to addressing health inequalities.
0: I love it. I've just written down, say so I think for my March, ours MDT is health inequalities. We've got COPD, we've got FCP and we've got health inequalities now. So thank you. So I think it's, it should just be what we do, but it isn't. And I think this is a really good start. So it did make me think, I did wanted to ask you a question. And do you receive any negative feedback around the work that you do? Do you ever get feedback like, what's she going on about? It's not a problem. It's their problem. Do you know what I mean? Like, there is one person which you will know is Nikki Kanani. I think she's come off Twitter. She's very accessible. She gets so much crap. It's ridiculous. Oh, well, I don't. Person, I think it's. I don't understand. Do you ever find no?
1: No. Nobody should have. No. And can I just say, I think Nikki is an extraordinary leader. I am inspired by Nikki and her leadership because it's genuine genuinely trying to do the right thing i do i do get negative feedback and it tends to go along the lines of everything you're saying seems to suggest that health inequalities has to do with health care what are you going to do about the wider determinants how about housing how about education how about income they are the biggest drivers of health inequalities and they are and my answer to that is this when we talk about health inequalities there are healthcare inequalities in terms of access, in terms of experience and outcomes from the services that the health system provides. And there's broadly health inequalities, which is to do with those wider determinants. What are we directly accountable and responsible for and what are we contributing to and influencing? I am clear that my direct accountability and responsibility is to work with colleagues right across the health system in tackling healthcare inequalities and ensuring that equitable access, excellent experience and optimal outcomes. And I also have a duty of care to be contributing powerfully and influencing local authority colleagues and public health colleagues in tackling those wider determinants so it's not either or it's both and but with clarity around accountability responsibility contribution and influence that's my response to that criticism
0: on a personal level how does it make you feel so that's like your work but you're human you're working really hard and there must be some days where people say things and you just think well you you do it (laughs)
1: Don't we all have those days? <laughs> Look, I think for the most part, when people are being critical, for the most part, they they genuinely are coming from a good place. People, they yeah. mean well. They're, they're trying to champion an area that they are concerned might get left behind. And I try to approach people's feedback in that spirit of, assume they mean well but there are instances where as you say it does become personal and then you have to have a conversation in your head around your circles of concern and your circles of influence the 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 people who are putting forward issues of please don't forget this element I see actually as within my circle of influence let's have a conversation how else can we do this but for those who simply want to attack personally, that's within the circle of concern that I can't do a great deal about. And so I don't expend energy in that circle because it's not good for me, it's not good for them, it's not good for the work that we're here to do. And that's how I try and delineate the two in my own mind.
0: I love, it. so I've never heard of that. So is the circle of concern, you know like you're either in or you're out? Is it just one circle? I'm either cons- I should be concerned, or I'm not concerned. Or is there lots of circles?
1: So, so so essentially, your circle of influence is is that it's that sphere where you have the agency to be yeah. able to make a difference. Whereas the circle of concern is is that space where it's grating, it's wearing, and it really is outside of your control to to okay. change it. So it's impossible for me to change how an individual feels about me, that's a circle of concern. I can't, there's not a lot because there's a lot of stuff going on there that I can't necessarily help them with. All I can do is to continue to expand the circle of influence to such a point where actually the issues and the persons within the circle of concern look over and think, actually we would quite like to come over into that circle of influence because it looks so positive, so impactful, so compelling, so welcoming, and it's doing great things. Why would we want to carry on sitting in this circle of concern over here? And people make a, I hope, a positive, proactive choice to move, but that only happens as long as I continue to make that circle of influence as powerful and influential and positive as I can make it.
0: Okay. Do you have a coach?
1: Absolutely I do. And can I just say to every person listening to this podcast, if you don't have a coach, you need to very rapidly get one. (laughs) Um, Because it's about resilience. It's about how do you find resilience in your leadership? You know, Um, The work of leadership is involving, especially when you care, If if you really care about the space in which you work or the agenda that you're trying to improve, when you really care like that, then you bring your whole self to it. And when you bring your whole self to it, that takes a toll on you. And in service of your own resilience, personally, and in service of the sustainability of what you're trying to achieve, you absolutely owe it to yourself to have levers of support. And having a coach is one of those. So yes, I have a coach and I wouldn't be without my coach. And can I shout out here, actually, to Claire Merrick. Claire was my coach up until about 18 months, maybe two years ago. Extraordinary. Honestly, there is a type of coaching that can box you into the space of poor me, how dreadful and awful. There is a type of coaching that takes you into the space of, I am not powerless, I am powerful I just need to understand the basis of my own power and build it. And that's what she did for me. And that's what loads of other people, I'm sure, out in the system will do. I hope Claire doesn't mind me doing this, but I had to say that.
0: So there will be people that think, they probably don't think they're thinking, poor me. But I have conversations, I had one today, like, how do I progress my peers my managers the leaders around me don't see me they don't value me I feel like I'm overlooked is it because of the color of my skin it's that is if you generally think that you are in an environment that is not supportive of you and you've been in that environment a long time it can be very hard to take you kind of get conditioned to the, the your environment, it can be very hard to step out of that space. It takes bravery. It takes It's a big risk. I've left a job without a job to go to, and I ended up setting up my own business. But could you provide any advice? Have you ever been in that situation?
1: Absolutely. And you know, I would be I would be lying to say that it isn't my lived experience because it totally is. And I guess it's what do, What do you do whilst you are in that space? what 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 do you do on a number of levels? What do you do to maintain your own sanity? What do you do to maintain a healthy perspective of who you are, of your worth and your contribution? And how do you begin to forge ways forward from where you are? And I think in terms of how do you maintain your own sanity, different people will have their own avenues. Faith is a very important part of me. I'm a person of faith and that anchoring really sustained me through some of the really difficult paths. In terms of how do you maintain a healthy perspective, it's important to reach out beyond your immediate environment. Find people within the system in which you operate, not necessarily within your immediate environment, but within the system, proactively, deliberately seek people out, you will be amazed at the kindness that there is in the wider world. You know, people who may not necessarily be able to say, oh, here, have this job, but they'll be able to have what I would describe as anchoring conversations with you. The sorts of conversations that will say, this is how I see the environment in which you are operating. This is how I see you. My advice to you is perhaps this is how you need to navigate your way in that space. That's the kind of conversation you need. So that it gives you perspective because it helps you to A, understand that you're not a problem. It helps you to see if there are areas that you do need to work on. It gives you a balanced perspective. It helps you to see things like, for example, what is it like to be in receipt of me? Say that, say that again. What, 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 does it, what does it feel like to be in receipt of me? Because, you know, sometimes we need to understand that our strengths, our passions, the shadow side of them can also be our weakness and are derailers so it could well be that it's not so much the passion that is the issue it's the but what does it feel like to be in receipt of me
0: i think that's so i love that question but it's making me think or not but it's making me think when you reach out for these anchoring conversations you have to be in a mindset of being happy to receive and you have to choose your people wisely because we all, you know, I can think of people, if I want somebody to go, yeah, Tara, you're amazing. I know who I'm going to go to. You know, like If I want, <laughs> like, if I want somebody that's going to be like, oh, they're so out of order. I know who to go to. So, but you learn that. I suppose it comes from where do you want to go? And we had a conversation just before we started recording around being really intentional. So it's, what do I want to happen? What do I want to achieve? What are my values? What are my goals? And what will help me move in that direction? And then then seek out the advice. Because I know so many people that, you know, will go to you, will come to me, will go to somebody else, go to somebody else, go to somebody else, go to somebody. They're not going to do anything because they don't quite know where they want. They want to move, but they're not quite sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and ab- absolutely. That point that you made about you need to be choiceful about who you have those anchoring sorts of conversations with. They need to be people whom you've observed as being organizational owls. They are people who are wise. They're politically astute. They're very well connected, but they're coming from a good place. And you take your time to just observe and see who they are. And there may not be people who are within your networks. There may be people that you have to actually put yourself out there to approach them. But if you can do that diligent homework first, and then go to those sorts of people to have those anchoring conversations, they will give you a balanced and honest perspective and, And they will do it in a way that builds you up. That's the key. They'll do it in a way that builds you up in that you come away from those conversations thinking, I have something to offer. I am worthy of more. Maybe I need to go away and work on X, Y, and Z, and I will. But actually, at the core of it, I am worthy. I am able. I am capable and I have work to do to be even better. That's how you want to come out of those conversations. You don't want to come out of those conversations thinking, I am great, I am perfect, it's all (laughs) fine, let's just go. (laughs) If if that's what's happened, then um, I'm not sure that was an anchoring conversation. On the flip side, if you come out and you feel absolutely wrecked psychologically and you're having to pick yourself off the ground because you've essentially been psychologically harmed. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, and that's why you need the conversations. You need to have it with the right person, people. You need to be choiceful in choosing who those people are. That, 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 that's how I would um, sort of approach it.
0: Where is the space in that to be radical? So when you said, you know, speak to the wise you didn't say old, but I'm thinking the wise old owl, very politically astute, but they're not the future.
1: So wisdom is not a function of age. That's the first thing to recognise. I know that the picture that an owl conjures up is potentially a person of a certain age, but not necessarily. You know, there are, there will be even your peers who are wise there will be you know one of the one of the greatest things i did and it wasn't my idea it was a wonderful wonderful person who suggested this to me i was doing my masters and my supervisor said why don't you do an appreciative inquiry of yourself and i said what do you mean by that an appreciative inquiry of myself i'm doing a masters degree in leadership <laughs> in quality improvement what's that got to do and she said because Appreciative inquiry is a quality improvement methodology. And what I see you doing, maybe by virtue of conditioning, is always asking, what more do I need to do to be better? What I don't hear enough is, here are the things that I'm really good at, and I'm going to build on them in order to get to where I want to get to. And she said, and because that narrative is not part of your person, you kind of need others to tell you. And that became my master's thesis, an appreciative inquiry of me. And, you know, the, what that did is it released me from the tyranny of expert leadership into an appreciation of my leadership based on who I am, the totality of me, not just or because I'm a GP, or because I've done a master's, or because I hold this qualification and that qualification, it became, I am worthy, because I make people feel comfortable around me. That's a very powerful leadership quality. But up until that time, well, it was just one of those things. You know, one of the conversations I had was somebody saying, do you know why everybody wants to be part of your governance group? I said, why? He said, I don't know how you manage to retain everybody in the group who is trying to speak, given how large that group is. He said, now I'm an introvert. I'm not going to put my hand up. But somehow, Bolo will come around and say, I sense that so-and-so would like to make a contribution. And he said, it's the most uncanny thing. How do you do that stuff? And suddenly somebody opens my eyes to something that I just did intuitively. That was worthy. That was a a leadership quality. But I only knew that because I asked.
0: What other surprising things did your peers reflect back to you?
1: Somebody said, you know, most times when people shed tears, it's usually because they are upset about something. And they said, you know, you host these forums and I used to host some forums called Included, Involved, and Inspired Forums. And they said the number of people who have cried in those forums. But they've, they've, they've wept not because they're sad. They've wept because you created a space for them to tell the stories of what they're proud of that to others may sound mundane, but then you make such a big song and dance about it, <laughs> you know, you know, like somebody who sat by somebody's bedside as 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 they died, or made alternative provision for their pets and things. And next thing we know, the next time Boulder is talking in some sort of forum, she's referring to X who did this, and you know. And I thought, well, I just do that because actually it's it's wonderful that the person did it. That's why I talk about it. They said, well, yeah, no, not everybody does that, and that makes people teary for all the good reasons so that was another thing and I thought oh I didn't realize that making people cry could be a wonderful leadership trait as long as they're crying for the right reasons so there you go it's so funny because I was like when you were talking earlier I thought I was
0: gonna cry (laughs) have you ever had speaking lessons like presentation lessons No,
1: no not ever
0: because I think the way you speak is very, it is motivational, it is inspiring. You use the tone of your voice. Like, but it's just its just what you do. It's just how you talk. I know we all use the tone of our voice, but I think you speak with authority. And at one point, I mean, it wasn't anything about me. I just thought I'm going to cry.
1: <laughs> Don't cry, Tara. That'd be embarrassing. But as I said to you, you know, I'm a person of faith um, and, and that does involve you know, speaking to people, picking them up, lifting them up. I've done a lot of that throughout, you know, my life. It's just part of who I am, you know, standing in front of an audience and, and giving people hope where they're despairing and, and charting a way forward for people where they feel stuck. It's just part of what I do as part of my faith journey. And I think sometimes when you're doing that, you're not doing it because you're, coaching yourself, you're doing it because that's what you need to do in that moment. but then it becomes a part of how you are. And that, that's the only explanation I have is the many, many years of one-to-one conversations with people or even audience conversations in that space that is uplifting, that is empowering, that is encouraging, that is enabling of people. And I guess as with most things, you get better as you do it, is probably, the, that's the only thing that I can think of that potentially I may well have had a lot of practice without knowing it.
0: <laughs> so as we close out this interview, what does the next few years look like? What do you want to achieve in this directorship?
1: I want to get to a place where we can tangibly and demonstrably say, That we've moved on from the analysis of health inequalities into the action space of doing something about health inequalities. Because the people and the communities that we're here to serve are justifiably impatient for us to move from analysis into action. And that, for me, how does that look? It looks like every policy, every program, every strategy, not just in the NHS, but whatever the sector, business sector, have hardwired into them an intentional and actionable commitment to addressing health inequalities, and that being followed through in practice in terms of what people actually do. If that happens, and we're able to say, we've made huge progress towards things like increasing healthy life expectancy for the most deprived communities, that we get to a place where we say, we are narrowing the life expectancy gap for people with learning disability, for people with severe mental illness, for people experiencing homelessness and rough sleeping, we can tangibly with numbers to back it up, say we've narrowed the life expectancy gap for those people. And that we're able to say that whatever service we commission, procure, design, deliver, is done with the expressed aim in terms of design, in terms of delivery, in terms of evaluation with the expressed aim of giving people equitable access to that service, that once they cross the threshold, they have an excellent experience and that we will make absolutely certain that their outcomes are as optimal as they can be. If we can do points one to six, then I would go away feeling that I have made a meaningful contribution.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you, but you, I need, you need to go. <laughs> you got work to do. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Tara. Absolute pleasure.